Well, would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Romans 9 is a key passage for the theology of divine election or predestination. Some of these verses in this chapter are quite hard to swallow. In fact, many Christians have choked on them. And many pastors, when they get up in a pulpit to preach on these verses, they choke. They explain everything in this chapter away. They try and make the passage do things that it's not doing so that we can be more comfortable with our view of God. I'm praying that I don't choke this morning. Pastor Mike preached on this passage back in 1995 and his sermon has been extremely helpful to me as I've studied this passage. And he says something um, that he can say, but it may be more difficult for me to say. And so let me say it. He says this passage is not as difficult as many people make it. That is, if they're willing to let God be God. He goes on to say, if you like to think of God as some glorified Santa Claus or a finite Father, then Romans 9 will surely get stuck in your throat. But if you're willing to let God be what the Bible has said about Him from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, that He's infinite, as we just read, eternal, unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, and truth then Romans 9 is what you would expect. It teaches the doctrine of divine election, but what does the doctrine or what does the term divine election mean? At the most basic level, it simply means that God chooses you before you choose Let me try to demonstrate that I think you agree with this statement intuitively. If I were to ask you the question, when did your salvation begin? How would you answer it? If I were to answer that question, I may say something like, my salvation began in March of 1989 when I believed the gospel in the basement of First United Methodist Church in Garden City, Kansas. And it's true, at that moment, the Spirit applied Christ's saving work to me. And I believed. But that's not when my salvation began. I could say, my salvation began when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And it's true that at that moment, 2,000 years ago, The Son 
accomplished salvation for me. So the Spirit applied it in 1989. The Son accomplished it 2,000 years ago. But that's not when my salvation began. There's a third way I could answer the question. I could say, my salvation began when the Father chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world that I should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined me for adoption as sons in Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. According to Ephesians 1, that's where my salvation began. And that's where everybody's salvation began if you are in Christ. That's what Paul teaches in Romans 9. Our salvation began with God's sovereign choice. It began with God's sovereign choice. I'm very aware that there are some of you here today who may not like what I have to say. You may even think, there he goes, pushing his Calvinistic agenda. But can I just say at the beginning what Mike said at the beginning of his sermon as well? It rang true for me. I hope that over the last almost 13 years I have made it very plain to you that what I set out to do every Sunday is to open the Scriptures. To let you see the Scriptures that I am teaching open-handedly and to say what they say. So before we begin, I'd like to ask two things of you. First, don't come to this sermon asking whether or not you like what I have to say, but instead ask, is this what the Bible says? I will try to do what I always aim to do, imperfectly, but to explain and to interpret this passage to the best of my ability. I simply want you to assess whether or not it's saying what the Bible is saying. Second, I'd like to invite you to come back next week. In Romans 9, Paul unequivocally teaches the doctrine of divine election, but in Romans 10, he also teaches the doctrine of human responsibility. They're taught side by side in Romans. They don't contradict one another. I don't have time to qualify everything in Romans 9 with Romans 10. So let's just let Romans 9 sink in this week. And we'll get to chapter 10 next week. Okay. That's my first introduction. Maybe a longer sermon because all I've done so far is introduce the topic of election. I've done nothing to introduce the actual text and where this topic fits within the flow of Paul's larger argument. So here's my second introduction. Last week, we came to the highest peak in the highest range of mountains in the Bible, Romans 8. We learned that if God is for us, that nothing, 
and nobody can finally stand against us. We learned that if we are in Christ, then nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. What amazing promises. What blessed assurance. But beginning in Romans 9, Paul anticipates an objection to these amazing promises. Could it be that God's promises have failed? And what leads him to introduce this question? Well, it was the situation in his day with ethnic Jews. Ethnic Jews had received so many promises from God, but now that the Messiah that was promised had come, and now that the good news was being declared throughout the entire ancient world, that the Messiah had come, the Jewish people largely rejected this message. They largely rejected Christ. Not everybody did. Paul was one of them. He's preaching this. But many didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. And what is more, many Gentiles did. Does this call into question God's ability to keep his promises? And if so, his promises to ethnic Jews, if so, does that call into question all of the promises that God made in Romans 5 to 8? Paul has an answer to this question, but he begins in verses 1 to 5, making it very clear to his readers that his heart is broken over this situation. He takes the stand and swears to God. Look at verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in my heart. This troubles me greatly. In fact, he goes on in verse 3 to say, He would be willing himself to be cut off from Christ for the sake of his kinsmen according to the flesh. That is for the sake of these ethnic Jews who had largely rejected Christ. He so badly wants them to believe the promises were fulfilled in Christ and to embrace Christ. Oh, that we as a church had such a heart for the lost. What's more, he knows that their rejection of Christ is even more gut-wrenching because of how much access they had to the gospel. Their whole history, including their scriptures, were pointing to the culmination of history in Jesus Christ. And yet, most of them missed it. Look at verse 4. They had adoption. God brought them out of Egypt and adopted them as His chosen people. His glory, the next word, was present with them in the pillar of fire as He led them. He then made a covenant with them at Sinai. Then He gave them His law so they would know how to walk before Him. He established a system of worship for them in the tabernacle so that they could have intimate relationship with Him. He gave them promises. Chief among those promises was that Christ would come from the offspring of the patriarchs. And He did. 
from their race is the Christ. And this Christ was not only a Jew according to the flesh, what's more, He was the promised Emmanuel. God with us. God who is over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Took on flesh to save a people for Himself. But although ethnic Jews had so many blessings, so many failed to see Jesus as the Savior who was so close within their reach. They had rejected Him. And this breaks Paul's heart. But he wants to be very clear that in no way calls into question God's promises. His answer is an emphatic no. This is how I would put it. God's promises for His promised people have not failed. This is my summary of what Paul says in verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. I believe that this verse, you may underline it, is the overarching argument for all of Romans 9 to 11. Everything else he's saying in these chapters is demonstrating that point. Proving it. God is just in His dealings. He keeps His promises. This umbrella, I mean this statement will be an umbrella for my sermon today, but also the umbrella for the next two sermons. So before I get into the first part of Paul's argument in Romans 9, it may be helpful to lay out Paul's whole layout, Romans 9 to 11. Don't write this down. Just look at it on the screen so that you can follow visually what it is that I'm saying. If you want to write it down, you can get it on the website later. But Paul introduces the whole thing, verses 1 to 5, with lament. I've already covered that lament. It establishes the problem that leads him to his main argument that God's promises haven't failed. And those unfold in three parts. He begins by looking at the past and shows that the children of promise have always been determined by God's choice. Then he looks to the present plight of the Jews and gives an explanation that their rejection of Jesus is because of their choice. So right there, like I said earlier, you've got divine sovereignty, human responsibility right next to each other. There's a lot more to chapter 10, but that's part of the way the argument's developing. Third, he looks to the future. Although many Jews have rejected the gospel, not all of them have. It's a partial hardening, as he will say. And that's not the end of the story. There will come a day when many will come to believe. And so he begins with pray. I mean, lament. He ends with praise. This is God's plan. And it is all to the praise of God's glory. So with the longest introduction now behind us, let's dive into the first part of Paul's argument in chapter 9. It comes to us in three parts. You've got his main argument that God's children have always been determined by God's choice. Already said that. But that raises some questions for you. It raised some questions for his original readers. And so 
He addresses those questions in the second section. And then finally, he shows that the current state of things in the church, this a lot of Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, not a lot of Jews. He says, the scriptures already predicted that. It's all happening according to plan. Lord willing, I'll get to that third point. But let's start with the first one so that we can get as far as we can. The first part is in verses 6 to 13. And I want to read them before I explain that. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the point that is being made in these verses. Inclusion has always been based on God's unconditional choice. Inclusion specifically into the family of God, the spiritual family of God, if you will. The family language in this chapter is all over the place. Inclusion into the family of God, it's always been based on God's unconditional choice. It's never been based on something else. From the minute God chose Abraham and made his promises to him, God was in the business of selecting some and passing over others. And this was never based off of ethnicity. It's always been the case that some of the descendants of Abraham were not part of the family of God. Paul gives two illustrations to prove his principle. Ishmael is the first. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Even though Ishmael was one of Abraham's sons, he was his own flesh and blood. He was not the son of promise. Isaac was. And as Paul says, it's not children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. And let me just say this. Behind God's promise stands God's prior choice, His sovereign choice. But it's not only a sovereign choice. The emphasis here is that it is an unconditional choice choice. And that's what the second example demonstrates. Hagar was Ishmael's mother, but she wasn't Abraham's wife. She was Sarah's servant. And Abraham and Sarah were sinning when they used Hagar to give them a son. So you could dismiss that example, but that's not the case with Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah had 
two sons in the right way, Jacob and Esau. They were twins of the same bloodline. But technically, Esau was older than Jacob. But God did something unthinkable in the ancient world. He chose Jacob over Esau, the younger over the older. But his choice was not based on any merit he foresaw coming in Jacob. It was unconditional. The choice was made before either of them did anything good or bad. God's election of Jacob shows his purpose in election. It's never based on our works. It's only based on God's choice. His sovereign, unconditional choice. It's based on the will of the one who chooses. On God's eternal will. His eternal decree. That's why Malachi says, in verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now this is one of the verses in Romans 9 that people choke on. And I admit that it's a difficult verse. But it's difficult in part because we exclusively associate the concept of love and hate with human emotions. But I think that's a mistake. But when we associate these concepts exclusively hate and love, with human emotions, the thought of God hating Esau gets stuck in our throat. But let me just remind you, I could point out many passages, but Ezekiel 33.11 says this, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. So, When Paul says in verse 13, quoting Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The most basic level, it simply means Jacob I have chosen. Esau, I have not chosen. Neither of them did anything to deserve my love, my favor, but God chose to show his love to Jacob and didn't choose to show it to Esau. Now at this point, I'm imagining some of you have completely shut me out. Others of you, you have said, okay, I see what you're saying here. That God chooses some and He doesn't choose others. And I see that that's clearly in the Bible. So you've listened to my first recommendation at the beginning of the sermon. But you're left there saying, I still don't like it. I still don't like it. It doesn't seem fair. Why is God intervening and getting in people's business? Doesn't that circumvent man's free will? It's not fair. Why is God intervening? Well, if this is getting stuck in your throat, May I suggest another way to think about all of this? This is something Mike Andrews said to me years ago, and it's always stuck with me. 
Let me assure you that you don't want God to be fair. Let me assure you that you certainly do want God to intervene in people's lives. Why? We've got to remember the context of the book of Romans. What did we learn in Romans chapter 3? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. And as a result of this, God is just and right to inflict wrath upon us. We all deserve God's judgment. If you want God to be fair, then that means that everyone will face God's judgment. All of us will be hated like Esau, passed over. God will let us continue in our sin and eventually we will experience His judgment. And what is more, Romans 3 teaches a key principle in all of this, that in our sin, none of us seek God. It's not as though there are all kinds of people trying to get to God. But God has slammed the door in His face. That because they're not elect, they they can't get to God, but they really want to get to God. No, the Bible is clear. No one is knocking at the door of heaven seeking God. And so unless God decides to seek them, they're lost. And God, friends, is eternal. So All of His decisions are eternal. Without God's sovereign, unconditional choice, none of us would seek God. What is more, Ephesians 2 teaches us that even the faith that we place in Christ is a gift, not a work, so that no one can boast. Or John 6.44, no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him without God's initiative without God's intervention guess what we get God's fairness and we'd all be toast without God's sovereign choice no one could be saved we shouldn't be choking friends over God hating Esau Esau was a sinner who deserved God's wrath, he didn't seek God. We should be choked up by God's love for Jacob. Why would God choose Jacob? A lying cheat. A deceptive thief. Why would God choose anyone? That's what should bring us to our knees. That's what should confound us. Why? And we're given a partial answer to this question in the next section of Romans 9. Let's read together verses 14 to 24. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then, He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. You will say then to me, Why does God still find fault? For who can resist His will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy? which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul deals with two objections to God's unconditional choice. The first has to do with God. Is God's choice unjust? Dealt with that briefly. The second has to do with man. Does God's choice prevent man from choosing God? Paul's overarching answer to these questions are a bit surprising. They teach us this. God's unconditional choice serves to magnify His unfathomable mercy. Sometimes we ask a question of somebody and they don't quite give us the answer, but they tell us what we really need to hear. And I think that's in part what's going on here. Paul begins by saying that God is in no way unjust. And to do this, he quotes Exodus 33, 19, where God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. A quote, by the way, that comes on the heels of what event? The golden calf. If God were just, He would have wiped out the whole nation. But He chose to have mercy on some of them. After all God had done to save Israel out of Egypt, they worshipped a false God. God would be just to condemn them all, but He chose to have mercy on many of them and to continue His promises to take those into the promised land. And this was based not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So without God's sovereign choice and effective call, none would be saved. And all of this is to highlight God's mercy. We should walk away from this sermon, from reading this passage, not saying, God, I don't like who you are. I don't like your ways. We should walk away saying, God, I am amazed that you would show mercy to a sinner like me. But God not only has mercy on whomever He wills, verse 18, He also hardens whomever He wills. And Pharaoh is God's example of this since we're talking about things going on in the Exodus. In Pharaoh, we see God's sovereign power is not only at work in salvation, but in all things. So God 
hardened Pharaoh's heart to magnify his mercy to Israel. Now, don't misunderstand this. When it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it doesn't mean that God prevented Pharaoh from believing. Again, Pharaoh's knocking at the door and God won't let him in. He wasn't knocking at the door. When Moses approached him, this is what he said to Moses. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I will not. Human choice. I will not let Israel go. His heart was already hard. But sometimes, as we learned in Romans 1, God gives people over to their sin. And He does so in such a way to work His sovereign plan in the world, specifically in the lives of those that He loves, to further His purposes. And that's what He did with Pharaoh, as verse 17 says. I raised you up that I may show my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. Pharaoh's the most powerful man in the world. He says, I will not let you go. But God, Pharaoh's no match for God. He can turn the heart of the king in whatever way he wants. And he did that in the case with Pharaoh. He demonstrated through ten plagues He wanted to be very clear, so he stretched it out. I'm more powerful than you, Pharaoh. I'm more powerful than the gods in all of Egypt. God used all of that, not only to show his power, but his mercy. It was through those acts of power that he led the people of Israel out of Egypt and magnified his mercy. That's the point. Paul is making. Those that God hardens, that turns them back in on their sinful hearts, He's doing to highlight His mercy. That's the main point Paul's making. And he'll say more on this point a little later, but first he brings up the second objection. If God has mercy on whomever He wills, it hardens whomever He wills, then who can resist His will? The question's not fully answered here. You'll have to wait for next week to see that God's sovereignty in no way limits human responsibility. But I think we'll also see that unless God intervenes, none of us will will to choose God. But for now, Paul seems to see that the real issue here is not an intellectual issue. And it rarely is. It's a heart issue. So he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? God is creator. We are the created. He is infinite in his wisdom and in his perfections. We are finite and very limited in our knowledge and our understanding. We don't know all of God's ways. We shouldn't trust. We shouldn't question His ways. He's the potter. We're the clay. We have no right to question God. Friends, some of you here today, you need to hear that. If I can just be very blunt. You are deciding on your own what you will believe about God. 
instead of letting God say who He is. And let God dictate the way that He will be worshipped. But the point that we need to know for now is that God's unconditional choice magnifies His unfathomable mercy. I'll just reiterate, He has every right to strike every one of us down right now, but He's not done that yet. And here's the reason for it. He has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, those that were not chosen, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. So God is waiting to bring about judgment in part to magnify His mercy. In a world where none are righteous, no, not one, where none seek after God, it's a wonder that God doesn't bring judgment swiftly. But He allows sinners to live in this world, in part, as we learn in Peter, because He wants some of them to be saved, but also to highlight His mercy. And how does this work? Well, if you think of going to the jewelers to look at a new diamond ring, what would the jeweler do? He'll put that ring out on black velvet. Why? To highlight the beauty of the precious metals, the splendor of the diamond and the precious stone. In a similar way, God allows those who are on their way to destruction to live side by side with those who have received God's mercy. Not to highlight that we're better than them, but to highlight God's work, to magnify God's mercy. Friends, the only way to come into the family of God is by God's sovereign choice. Because if we were left to our own, we would never choose God. In fact, we've all turned aside. Together we've become worthless The only way to come into the family of God is by God's mercy. And His mercy is for those that He chooses to show His mercy to. And that's based entirely on His unconditional, eternal decree. Not by anything that we do. So we are called to respond to the gospel in faith. Today. You are called to respond to the gospel in faith. You have human responsibility. But behind all of that, to look behind the curtain is to know that unless God is working in mercy, none of us would come to believe. We don't need to be troubled that God is unjust. He's perfectly just. His righteous requirements have been met in Jesus who lived a righteous life that we have all failed to live and died the death that we deserve to die. So if we place our faith in Jesus, God looks on Him and ransoms us. So He's just in His decision to pardon sinners. But He's also just in His decision to choose to show His mercy for some and not others. If I had $10 million... That'd be nice. And I decided to dish out 50,000 to 10 people here just because I wanted to. Could you accuse me of injustice? 
The people who didn't receive any money could certainly not say that I'm being unfair. It would highlight my generosity to the ones who had received the mercy. Now, if I chose to only give the money to a certain class of people, you may charge me with discrimination or question my goodness, but you couldn't question my fairness. But with God, friends, the decisions that He has made are based on nothing that we have done. He's not showing favoritism. He's not showing discrimination. He has lavished His mercy on a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation without discrimination. This is the way that things have always worked with God. In the situation the Roman Christians found themselves in in the first century shouldn't have surprised them. In fact, Paul goes on to say that the Scriptures predicted that for a time, that many Gentiles would come into the family of God, but only a remnant of Jews would come in. We see this in verses 24 to 29, which I'll cover briefly. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Those and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So referring to Gentiles coming in. Verse 27. And Isaiah cries out, answering Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring we would have been like Sodom and been like Gomorrah. This teaches us that the present makeup of the church, of the people of God, is the fulfillment of God's precise plan. God's word hasn't failed. His promise to His promised people hasn't failed. He's working in the ways that He has always worked by a sovereign, unconditional choice The people who are in the family of God are so because of His mercy. This is how it has always worked. And God's unconditional election has always been, even from the call of Abraham, intended for Jews and Gentiles. Surely, many Gentiles have believed and only a smaller group of Jews have. But even this is a fulfillment of God's precise plan laid out in Scripture. And there's more that God has promised for ethnic Israel as well. So the promise is made to us. This is what I want you to hear. In Romans 5 to 8, that if God is for us, nobody can finally be against us. If we're in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That those promises hold true because of who God is and how God works. Those He foreknew, He also predestined. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He will also glorify. So the assurance that we have if we are in Christ is predicated on the fact that it is a work of God from beginning before the foundation of the world, to the very end, 
in the new heavens and the new earth. And it is the work of God in everything in between. We can trust Him. Our security is based on who He is and that His promises He will keep every last one of them. So whatever you're going through today, you can trust Him. What is more, you should praise Him for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forever. Amen. Father, help us to not create You in our own image. You have created us in Your own image. What a privilege. Help us submit to Your Word and what it says about You. But I pray that more than that, that we would not simply come to a conviction of Your sovereignty but that we would marvel at Your mercy. That in Your plan, Your eternal decree, You have determined to save a people for Yourself and that which You determine comes to be. What confidence is ours. What blessed assurance we have. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.